Hi, this is Tzemach, my guest today again, Shalom Aleichem, and this is the sound number three. How are you? Shalom Aleichem. Thank God. Aleichem Shalom. Thank God. <laughs> How are you doing? Okay, good. Let me ask you something. Uh, yesterday I attended, um, I wouldn't call, uh, let's say Zoom meeting about Polish uh, Hasidim, and specifically, uh, they spoke about Alexander Hasidim. So at the end of the meeting, I asked the question, if there, we know that Alexander has been destroyed in a war, and I asked the question generally, if there any reflection on what happened during Holocaust in those community today, if, if there's any cultural memory. And sure enough, I was like, you know, shushed away without any answer, which is the story of my life. So let me ask you this question. Is there any cultural memory of Holocaust amongst the Hasidim? Not sure what you mean by cultural memory. Uh, what you, by, uh, by cultural memory? I mean, there's some kind of attempt to incorporate this enormous event instead of just 100% ignoring it. And by, you know, I, by 100% ignoring it, obviously you can't ignore it 100%. But what I mean is there's no any, there's not even the name in Yiddish or, I mean, you can call it a churban, but churban is like, hey, uh, I spilled the milk, it's a churban, you know? Well, I mean, I would have to say that I think that most, Hasidic groups um, do have some sort of cultural memory because in the last 15 to 20 years, uh, they've published many, many books about their particular Hasidic group. And many of these books are no longer about the Rebbes and, and the Rebbes families. They're about the Hasidim themselves. For example, the Gera Hasidim published a um, huge volume about um, the Hasidim who survived the war. But clearly, you know, that deals with the war. I mean, how they survived, who they were, where they learned before the war. Um, Bogov has always been, in my opinion, pretty Holocaust conscious. And, um, you know, but I, I think that most Hasidic groups, the Holocaust is the backdrop for everything. Um, it's, the it's the point of reference. While they're not going to discuss the theodicy, that, that's not going to be discussed for sure. But I think many do, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, many have published books about um, the nature of the Hasidus before the war, who are the important people in the court, um, things like that. And I, I mean, certainly Bubov has, and certainly Gear, as I mentioned, has. I also believe that Satmar, I don't know if they've published individual books, but almost any discussion with Hungarian Jews of the type who survived the war, inevitably, or maybe not so inevitably, but uh, from the get-go, deals with the Holocaust. It deals with the events of um, spring 1944 and the uh, 
massive deportations of Hungarian Jews. I mean, there's no discussing uh, Satmar or Kloisenberg or any other of these new Hasidic groups, Nitra, Kashoi, whatever, these are so-called uh, neo-Hasidic groups in the Hungarian world. Um, there's no discussion without the deportations of uh, spring 44. Now, as far as Alexander, I think, you know, I, I mean, again, I did not listen to uh, the broadcast, but I think one reason the people there uh, may have failed in what your objective was is Alexander was recreated in Israel in the last 20 years. And I have a hunch that the vast majority of its followers are new recruits. These are people of probably Hungarian background who, um, and Alexander is not the only Hasidist, who've decided to uh, join a Hasidic group on the ground floor. Um, the Rebbe in Israel, you know, started a yeshiva until 20, 30 years ago, it was almost zero. I mean, most Polish Jews who survived and decided to retain their Hasidic identity, and it wasn't a large group, contrary to what they want, want you to believe, uh, joined Gear. The uh, Gear became the catch-all for um, all Polish Jews who decided to be Hasidic, and e even including those in the United States who uh, whose Hasidic identity was very tenuous. Uh, you know, they did not have beards, um, et cetera. They, their children, in many instances, went to regular yeshivas or went to college, but they, they joined the gear, even though prior to World War II, their, their identity may have been uh, Amshinov or Mojits or uh, Sochachov or whatever. Um, but gear became the catch-all. The same thing happened to a certain extent in Hungary. Uh, a good part of the Hungarian survivors who decided to retain their Hasidic identity joined Satmar, even though before the war, they probably were Hasidim of uh, Bells or of uh, Spinka or whatever, you know. And then there's the Hasidus in Rockland County Square, which if you ask them the question you asked, you'll probably get a blank look because 95% of all Square Hasidim, even though Square, as, as you know better than I, is located in the Ukraine, 95% uh, of today's Square Hasidim, if not 100%, are Hungarian Jews. So what would they know about Square or Machnovka or, you know, the cities around Square where the Rebbe, so to speak, had his Magidus, you know, had his authority? Uh, they don't know. Uh, so, you know, in a certain sense, Hasidus was recreated after World War II. But I will say, I don't know that much about Square, but certainly the Hungarian Hasidim, I have to reemphasize, the beginning, the Alpha and the Omega of their discussions of Hasidic, Hasidic history is is the events of um, Spring 44. Well, uh, let me, um, you know, I, I, I always uh, draw a parallel between Gulag and Holocaust. And I know there's events of different magnitude, but certainly tragic events in parallel to each other. So particularly if mm -hmm. I speak, if I speak of Khurban Chabad, you can't uh, uh, just, uh, you, you know, it's, it's Gulag and Holocaust and maybe Gulag more than Holocaust. But I'm not sure about that. 
all right, okay. So we, we're not, there's no competition, put it this way, but it, let's say right. it's two significant, uh, enormous events. Right. And nevertheless, there's no any proper reflection. And to be honest with you, I don't know if there could be proper reflection because that proper reflection uh, leads to so many uncomfortable questions and answers that people rather not touch it. Well, I mean, I agree with you about the questions of a theodicy, of why it happened, how God could have allowed it to happen. But I, I would draw a distinction between um, the language you used. Um, wh what did you say that the uh, gulags and the Holocaust? Uh, Listen, um, I, 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 know, I know your opinion about this. So, like, I don't no, want to. No, I, 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 no, I know that you feel that they're incomparable. No, that's not that's not where I'm going. That's that's not where I'm going. Okay. I, I think I think you said that th these things were were not talked about, or 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 you used a, a term. I, I never I never heard it properly addressed. And okay, uh, as far as I know, I I I know why Chabad didn't speak about this. And, right, uh, but, but, be, be, because it's 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 part of sort of recreating their whole myth about themselves in Russia well, without actually addressing it accurately. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, there's a, I think there's a distinction between not talking about something and obfuscating something. Um, Chabad has obfuscated its history in regards to the Holocaust uh, because I'm sitting here in my kitchen. I don't have any books around me. And I can rattle off dozens of dozens of important Hasidim and members of the royal family who were killed in the Holocaust. Um, this Rabbi Schneerson never emphasized, and in a certain sense, he obfuscated it. Because, for example, the Hornsteins, father and son, one was the son-in-law of the Maharash, and his son was the son-in-law of the Rayats. Um, when the Rebbe said Kaddish for young, uh, for his brother-in-law, uh, Mendel Hornstein, he said it very quietly, without any sort of Lubavitcher trashk. They make a trashk about everything. When when they uh, go to the bathroom, it's publicized by LMS. Lubavitch News Services announces that Lubavitcher Chassid Y is on his way to the bathroom. But as far as the Rebbe saying Kaddish, for whom he was saying Kaddish, why he was saying Kaddish, this was not emphasized. As a matter of fact, it was obfuscated. Now compare that. There's a little book that came out uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, uh, which was a collection of the Rebbe's letters prior to his assuming leadership of the movement. And in that collection, we have numerous letters of Rabbi Schneerson addressed to various survivors wanting to know in detail how his brother-in-law, Mr. Hornstein, was killed, where he was killed, what day he was killed, how he died, how his mother, who was the daughter of the Marash, uh, because at that time, he was, not in a he was not the minister of propaganda for his own movement. He was just an ordinary person called Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, and you know, none of this really was important for American Jewry. But I think once he assumed leadership and he adopted his uh, public persona, uh, he decided that this movement was going to become American. 
This, this movement was to lose its European anchor and certainly its Russian anchor. It was to become American because that would be the way to give American Jews the upbeat message. Rabbi Schneerson believed that American Jews needed the upbeat message that talking to them about murder and genocide and destruction was not the way to get them interested into Jewishness. The way to get them interested into Jewishness, according to Rabbi Schneerson, we should print a book about that, is writing checks. But before even writing checks, it's by song, by dance, by, by drink, by anything but sadness. And of course, our Jewish memory is a martyrdom. Part of our Jewish memory is certainly martyrdom. Uh, I think Heinrich Gratz, if my Lubavitcher friends out there will excuse me for quoting uh, Professor Gratz, but Lubavitchers probably don't even know who Gratz was, so I can do it. Uh, Gratz said that the Jewish history is, is literatur und Leiden. It's our literature and our suffering. And the Rebbe decided to do away with the suffering. He wasn't going to talk about the Holocaust. You know, irregardless the fact that, and I have to say this because otherwise people will think I'm just a blowhard, that uh, people like uh, Reb Zalman Schneerson of Ludge was killed. Ichim Asmid was killed in Riga, burnt alive. Um, other Lubavitcher Hasidim died in the siege of Leningrad where the German troops surrounded Leningrad. That was murder. Uh, that, that wasn't a natural death, nor was it caused by Stalin. I mean, I'm not going to go into the details. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Yitzchok, uh, Yehuda Everett, or Shiva Lubavitcher, Shiva killed in Warsaw. Um, another Rosh Hashiva there, Beryl Kurnitzer, Beryl Garfunkel, killed in Warsaw. Um, the Rebbe's Gabai, um, uh, what's his name? Fagan. Uh, Fagan, killed in Warsaw. Um, Hornstein's we mentioned, I can go on. I mean, I'm just talking about, this is what the uh, Gorari called the cabinet. Does the cabinet, the Rebbe's cabinet, all killed. Um, but no, the Rebbe never talked about, I mean, I'm always hawking and uh, ticked off by not naming an institution after Gorari. Let me be honest, and I'm sitting in, a, in an analyst's couch right now, let me be honest. I'm a little ticked off that all these mostos that have been uh, created, Chabad houses, Chabad house for jails, Chabad house for universities, Chabad house for daycare centers, and none of what I'm saying is a joke. There are Chabad, not one was ever named for men such as Yehuda Ever, such as Chatzy Feigen, such as others, such as including, I'm not downplaying the people who were who were murdered in the Soviet Union, but nothing, nothing was named for them as if they're not important. Um, you know, uh, I always like to tell this little story that appeared in um, uh, Zalman Duchman's book, Shamea Oza, and his memoirs or his stories that uh, he writes at the beginning that when he arrived in USA from, uh, from Russia, probably via Germany uh, in 1950, I believe it was, he met the Rebbe who had just assumed his leadership role. And the Rebbe said, Shalom Aleichem, it's been a long time since we saw each other in Leningrad. And uh, so uh, Duchman 
was, a, as they say in Yiddish, a Duchman Yid. So Duchman answered the Rebbe, and the billet is given a tire. Yeah, it was a many years. It was, but it was an expensive ticket. How many Lubavitcher, important Lubavitcher Chassidim, uh, were died in the starvation in Leningrad? How many important Lubavitcher Chassidim died in Siberia? How many died in in various ghettos? Well, I mean, let, 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 let me let me let me ask you something. So the two the two points here. Number one is what Ramaj did, but it also what Rayats did. And with all due respect, and your love to Rayats. It might have been uncomfortable because, you know, Rayat sort of abandoned those people in Warsaw. Not you all know, of them, I, but I, many of them. Uh, I can't, I don't know. I mean, uh, first of all, I'll give the Rayats, I'll cut him a little slack, as they say, because after 1944, he was quite seriously sick. Um, and he was not a very active person after 1944. Uh, number two, I mean, if what uh, our friend, I can't remember his name, the fellow from Yale who wrote the book of how the Lubavitcher Rebbe was saved. Briggs. It, Briggs. I think his if name was fact, Briggs. Yeah. yeah, if in fact what he's writing is correct, that the Rebbe kept on um, pushing telegrams to Washington to save his silverware, um, then, you know, let the, let the dice fall where they, where they have to. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to defend this sort of thing. Um, you know, uh, but I'm, all, I, I'm only, I'm, listen, I'm only referencing because maybe all those people who died in Warsaw and in other places, they weren't uncomfortable to remember them. Of course, it's uncomfortable because you want to give the American Jews a message that, you know, you want to give them the message of Shlomo Karlbach. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's a nice thing. It's yeah. one of the most meaningful. But <laughs> I'm not that's your opinion. But um but um you know Zohar Khasiolos not in fact Lubavitch doesn't practice it. In fact, Lubavitch has forgotten anything uh before 1950. You know, the Bechesed, I say Bechesed, um they remember certain members of the um uh, of the royal family, and, and those have been only um, re, uh, re scripted after the Rebbe died. As long as the Rebbe died, many of these people weren't even mentioned. Like Hornstein was never mentioned when the Rebbe was alive. Um, the Babroisker was never mentioned when the Rebbe was alive. Um, the other members of the uh, Schneersons who were leaders of their own right were totally not mentioned. And, you know, other people were like that, too. Now that the Rebbe, yeah, now there's let, no show. Listen, listen, with all, with all due respect to, to Rashab and others, you know, Rashab felt that communism didn't exist. Rashab felt that Zionism didn't exist. A little that they know uh, in a matter of uh, 30, 50 years, they're going to lose 80% of their Hasidim to those movements, if not more. But, you know, right. why, why mention it? They don't even exist. Well, but, but you know, while the Rashab was alive, I mean, there, the, the events like what Zalman Shachter calls the uh, Sinai events, the Holocaust and the creation of the State of Israel did not occur. As, you know, and the, the Russian Revolution was in 1918, so, and the Rashab died in 1920. So the Rashab really didn't have much time to digest the significance of the Russian Revolution. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yes, a lot of people... Listen, listen. But, but 
uh, of course, the mass attrition of Chabad boys and girls to communism occurred on his watch. It's not like it started in 1917. It was just in full bloom in 1917. But and that and that as and that includes, as we know, Schneerson family itself, which weren't immune to this. Maybe an opposite. I you know I have a theory because of a because of the connection of communism to Mashiachism. You know you would expect Schneerson family to to participate fully in that. I have to say this, that here, um, when we're talking about the effects of anarchism, socialism, communism, secularism, Zionism, it wasn't limited to Chabad. I mean, Russian Jewry in general, Tsarist Russia, was, including the most famous rabbis, uh, Misnagdim, whatever, were affected by this. Their children and grandchildren uh, abandoned it en masse. I mean, many have been written out of history, so we can't even uh, know who they were. Uh, so this was not a phenomena um, limited to Chabad. But what, what I'm talking about is a Sinai event where the Rebbe had enough time to reflect on its importance to world Jewry. And actually, there were two Sinai events, the Holocaust and the State of Israel. And, uh, you know, State of Israel, he dealt with in a very ad hoc manner. He kept on insisting that he wasn't a Zionist, but on the other hand, he did everything a Zionist would do. But in his usual two-faced self, and excuse me for saying this, he told some people in Israel who came to see him that he and his Hasidim were the true Nitura Parta. And others, he, he loved to sit and speak to uh, generals and and modern Orthodox Israeli political leaders like Yitzhak Raphael, Yosef Berg, Kalman Kahana, Rabbi Shlomo Goran. These were his buddies. His buddies were not the leaders of our good Israel. You call, you call Shlomo Goran secular or what? I'm not sure. No, I didn't call him secular. I said modern Orthodox. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but his, his, his sessions in his office were not with leaders of the Aguda, with Menachem Parish or with Ichimer Levine, the Gary Rebbe's son-in-law, who was in America every Montic and Donnerstick. No, his, his buddies were pe people with PhDs from, Hildes from Berlin University and ordination from Hildesheimer Seminary, uh, Berg, Kahana, and who knows who else? Uh, you know, these were his buddies. And, and you know, I, I don't know what to say about okay, it. Was he, he, he has milieu. He was a Mandarin mensch. Pardon? It was his milieu because he was a moderne mensch. Absolutely. So what was he doing as a Hasidic Rebbe? Uh, why not? He got promoted. He got promoted, yeah. Because, he, because as I said, he was a man for all seasons. When he met, uh, you know, the Gare Rebbe's brother or something, he, he, he turned, he brought forth all his learning and sounded like an Eastern European rabbi. When he met uh, an American writer or something, uh, Jewish, he started uh, digging deep in his knowledge bank and he came up with some novels that he read in 1948 and he uh, started appearing as more of a modern Orthodox rabbi. I mean, he was a man for all seasons. 
And so what did he really believe in? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, who knows? I, yeah, I don't but think we're, but we're, we're veering off from our fun subject for yeah, today, which is absolutely. the Holocaust, you know. Absolutely. But, but the, what I'm trying to drive at is that here is a rabbi who spoke probably his career from 1950 or 51, probably for a few thousand hours, maybe more, probably 10,000 hours. He never once mentioned the Holocaust. Never. Not amazing. Once. It's just amazing. I mean, he did Lo Yokum Pamaim Tzora. He said those things, but this is like a well, Vertlach, you know? That, it's a Vertlach. Yeah. It's a Vertlach, you know? Um, he wrote thousands of letters, uh, except when Chaika Grossman, the, one of the leaders of Mapam in Israel, called him out, and she did. Uh, he got all upset, and then he responded to her with a few letters dealing with the Holocaust, but only in response to Chaika Grossman uh, letting him have it. And so here we have sermons, letters, I don't know what else. I mean, did Lubavitch ever put out a book dealing with the Holocaust? Uh, forget about them dealing with the Holocaust as in general, but dealing just with the Holocaust and um, Lubavitch. No. In the last 10 years, they've churned out books, Lubavitch in Germany, which is bull. They've put out Lubavitch and uh, who knows where, Lubavitch and everything, Lubavitch and Venezuela. But have they put out a book called Ahurbun the Chabad? No, because it may upset the gentle dispositions of American Jews. It, they may get upset by reading that Ichimasmid was burnt alive. They and, you know, and again, I'm only talking about the leading Hasidim because the areas of white Russia, both Western white Russia and Eastern white suffered Russia. Suffered most, and suffered the most, percentage-wise, most killed. Right, the most. And as late as 1939 or 41, there are still thousands of Lubavitch Hasidim living in those areas. And how many survived? One, two, three, uh, very few. Has Lubavitch decided to memorialize these people? No. Um, you know, um, you know, you know, this, listen, listen, this, this, this is, it's like, it's like with Gulag, you know, uh, why, why, why Taki not mention uh, some Mesut to name after somebody who was, uh, who, who, who was a martyr in Russia, in, in the Gulag? Why, why not? But like, but they, they want, they, you see, the narrative that they're spinning is with all the, uh, with all those rayats yontev that it's, there's only Rebbe was in prison, nobody else was in prison, you know. That's it. Yeah, and they're also spinning this thing that everything was miraculous. That uh, you know there are miracles occurring every single day. Uh, well, you know, in the rayats's own family, you know, some no, but there's, 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 there's more to it. There's more to it. The whole the whole religion. Uh, uh, turned into above mentioned new age where everything has to be upbeat and, and positive and ev every, every 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 article has to be about some kind of a freaking miracle you understand because Absolutely. there's not there's, there's nothing that happens in life except miracles so this right. is, this is a toxic propaganda that's being and pushed out in volumes unbelievable and any kind and of a touch of the real life is being obfuscated, to use your language. Absolutely. And yet, another example of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's um, 
misreading the tea leaves, as they say, when it comes to public policy. I mean, it's subject for a discussion about the Rebus public policy, like there's baloney about the Israeli army taking over Damascus, there's baloney about um, prayers in public schools, his, his baloney... Um, education, his other, education day. Education, right. Yeah, where, that's where right. He, he, um, now, this is another example. Come 1978 or 77, and Gerald Green's miniseries, The Holocaust, hits the United States network television. Suddenly, and I was there, suddenly the same gentle Jews in America who the Rebbe thought would not be able to digest the Holocaust and would suffer mental breakdowns reading about the Warsaw Ghetto, suddenly for the next 20 years, American Jews couldn't get enough about the Holocaust. They couldn't, for between 1978 and probably 2000, American Jews was, was Holocaust. And as um, a man, a friend of mine, I won't mention his name, uh, said, there's no show business like Shoah business. Oh, yes. And it was so true. And the Rebbe didn't get it. The Rebbe didn't get it. He thought that talking about the Holocaust would upset American Jews. Quite the opposite. Also, Elie Wiesel came about. Yeah. Right. No, Elie, absolutely. I didn't mean to exclude Elie Wiesel. Absolutely. He played an important role in this, too. Um, but it showed thousands of Americans, tens of thousands of American Jews got new identities as Jews, um, not partially because of, of the Holocaust, but no question about it, between Elie Wiesel, uh, people like Primo Levi, Gerald Green's miniseries, and who knows what else? I mean, um, a whole slew of academic books. Almost every university now has a chair in Holocaust studies. Uh, Catholic yeah. schools. Yeah, right. <laughs> Protestant schools. Yeah, yet I will tell you an incident, uh, you know, in, in an unnamed city where every year, um, and I'm sure this happens in almost every city in the United States, the local Jewish umbrella organization as a federation sponsors the Holocaust Memorial Day. And the local Jews, and mostly American Jews, get together. They invite cheap politicians, and which politician isn't cheap? I mean, one out of a thousand is not cheap. They invite cheap politicians. They invite a few uh, ministers. They invite uh, a black minister, definitely. Nowadays, I guess, they have to invite a gay uh, leader. And uh, they have a memorial meeting. Now, you know, since I don't particularly care for this sort of memorial, I rarely attend. Um, but if I attend, I take a seat and I'm respectful for the proceedings. Not Karl Lubavitcher friends. They do attend. And they're standing in the back trying to hustle people for um, to put on tefillin or hustle people for candles or whatever it is they're hustling, which in fact all translates into uh, the almighty dollar. Now, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, there's a time and a place to daven mincha, and there's a time and place not to daven mincha. And there's a place, you know, the bathrooms uh, not to uh, daven, and there's a place that you do daven. There's a place to put on film, and there's a place you don't. When you're having a haskara for the Holocaust for six million martyrs, take your seat, take your seat respectfully, and let the proceedings go on. When the proceedings are over, you can do whatever you want to. You can undress, you can do whatever you want to. But while the proceedings are on, but not these characters, because these characters believe, because of their leader, that the Holocaust 
did not affect them. They believe that they have nothing to do with the Holocaust. What shaykhs do they have to do with the Holocaust? Nothing. The Rebbe never spoke about the Holocaust, and they have nothing to do with the Holocaust. So they can, in all naivete, attend Holocaust memorial meetings and not participate and just hustle their their, their brand. Yeah, but those are those are like Chabad boys and Chabad boys like no, Chabad no, no, adults. They're just no, they're droids. No, they're droids. They have no. No, I am personally referring to shluchim. I am per, uh, referring to adult men. No. No, I'm not talking to boys. And even boys, you know, there's no excuse for, and, and it's not only Lubavitcher yeshiva, it's true about all yeshivas. There's no excuse for not spending an hour a month talking to people about, the uh, teenagers about the Holocaust. There's no excuse about that. You no, know, but listen, this, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, listen I'm, t- I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, well, 30 shluchim around here, I mean, I, any of them are adults enough to think for themselves and understand what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. No, they're just grown-up kids. Well, we don't have grown to Grown-up, ignorant kids. Well, absolutely, but that's their problem, not ours. It's their problem. You know, let me tell you a story that uh, I said, I told this on a Satmar um, telephone line, you know, some, you know, they have these telephone lines where you can press this button and you'll get this, press this button. And, get this. and it's all in Yiddish. And it's interesting. And people do listen to it because I've gotten feedback. I've been on it numerous times. And uh, of course, I will be honest to tell you that they don't want me to speak about religious issues because they know that I, um, I differ with them on uh, my Jewish philosophy. But um, I, I, I was speaking about the Churban on Tisha B'Av one year, not this year, a few years back. I was speaking about whatever you want to call it, the Shoah, the Holocaust. You know, my parents never used those terms. The, they said the Churban, the Mohammed. You know, uh, um, and I was talking, and I related what I had read in one of the Satmar newspapers, and no one called me up and challenged me. And a prominent Hungarian Rav who orbited around the Satmar Rebbe uh, was telling the Satmar Rebbe that the events of the uh, of, of 19. 19- 40 to 45, uh, you know, seem to resemble uh, almost what happened on Tisha B'Av in that we read about on uh, Tisha B'Av. Oh, no. And the Samaria oh, no. and and looked at him and said, what are you talking about? The events of the Holocaust were much worse than Tisha B'Av. Mm-hmm. They were much worse than Chorben Bayashani. And that's, you know, we may have, I, you know, I don't, I've overcome it. Uh, most American Jews may have reservations about the Satmar Rebbe's positions on Israel, on this, you know. He's um, spot on here. He's spot on here. It's it's what? He's spot on here. Oh, okay. And uh, right. And um, so, so this is what I was trying to say in the beginning. The most, for most Hasidim, the beginning and the end of their history is the Holocaust. That doesn't mean that they're living in the past. It doesn't mean that they don't recognize that there are other events, but it's impossible to talk to a Satmar Chosset of a certain age without talking about the Holocaust. It's just impossible. And the same is true about Bobov, the same is true about Bells, the same is true. You know, about in Lubavitch, it's just the opposite. I mean, you can't talk about the Holocaust, even, even though they had similar losses and a similar destruction, and they claim that they are the Hasidus of Klal Yisrael. Well, that they certainly can't deny, that Klal Yisrael was 
was basically destroyed during uh, the events of 1933 to 45, and certainly the events of 39 to 45. I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no um, arguing that. But yet, you know, they're not in, you know, and and I'll, I agree with you that I mean, I I mentioned it, and I'll say it again that, uh, you know, as far as the, um, the memorializing the martyrs of Russian, as the Lubavitchers want to call them, and it's fine with me, the Sore Ruge Malkos who were killed, uh, the various Lubavitcher Hasidim who were imprisoned, who were killed. I mean, don't they warrant a book, uh, a memorial book about every Lubavitcher Hasid who was killed or whose um, footsteps were lost between 1920 and uh I don't know what year, 1990 or 1970, whatever, you know, but, but, but no, there's no such book, you know, and if someone knows of this book, I'd like to buy it. Um, and, and there's no, su there's no such book memorializing uh, other people who sacrifice their lives, uh, even if not to the point of martyrdom in, in under the same conditions. Uh, the Rebbe, the Rebbe said once in a Sicha, and it, it was a uh, sikha that was then Mugwa. Uh, it was went over, the, someone went over. The, the Rebbe said that after his Shvir left Russia, the only Schneerson who was active in Hafotza Satora was his father. Well, you know, I don't, I'm not a genius. I'm just an ordinary Jew, uh, as uh, what's his name? Uh, Bill O'Reilly says, I'm a simple person. <laughs> um, I'm a simple man. And, uh, but I thought, well, there was a Yid called Rabbi Schneer Zalman Schneerson, uh, who was in Russia till around 35 or 36. And he was a Schneerson and he was active in Hafotza Samayonis. As a matter of fact, when the Rebbe left Russia, uh, he became the point man for collecting of certain funds in, in Russia and distribution of these funds to the Hasidim. So how come the Rebbe left him out? The Rebbe had a, a fantastic memory, but, you know, it was a very selective memory. When, you know, so I'm not in any way begrudging his father's uh, work. I mean, call uh, kavod. But that doesn't mean that there, were, there was no one else. And, you know, I bet that if we started digging, and uh, certainly something that you sent me uh, recently, about other Schneersons in Russia, you know, uh, descendants of Rebar Shalom, of, you know, the real relatives of the Rebbes, you know, not descendants of others. Uh, they too are active in, in uh, retaining Judaism in the Soviet Union. So that's not really 100% true what the Rebbe said. I mean, it's a nice way of giving cover to your father, it's true, but there are ways of giving cover to your father without insulting other people. Uh, and so, um, I don't know. I really think it would be important to, to put out a book called Kiddush Hashem Vishnos Tofresh Pei Toshin Chof. You know. No, and uh, I, listen. Here's here's an idea. Let let's put this idea out there. There are Harugi, uh, you know, Harugi Malchus uh, in right. from Holocaust and in Russia, and they they deserve that their name are more publicized. They deserve to have institutions named after them they deserve to be celebrated and explained it's just enough with the riots imprisonments every year five times a year there are other people who were killed martyred and uh, they should be remembered i agree i i agree with you i mean 
Um, you know, I will say this, that um, I think, and again, I am not an expert about the literature of other Hasidic groups, but I do know a little. I will, you know, uh, thank God I, I have collected a, uh, quite a library of books about various Hasidic groups. Uh, and, uh, you know, many Hasidic groups have published books, as I mentioned in the opening segment, uh, of just about the ordinary Hasidim, not about... Um, not about the Rebus and the Rebus family. Um, I'm reading a book uh, right now about uh, an important Hungarian Rob who survived the uh, the concentration camps in 44 to 45, the Krasner Rob, Rabbi Hill Lichtenstein. And he was probably the second most important Hungarian Rob to survive after the Satmar Rebbe. You can't read three pages of this book without coming across Kadoshim, Kadoshim, Kadoshim. You can't read three pages of this. You know, his first wife was killed, his father-in-law was killed, his father was killed. So the, to the answer to this question, they're not obfuscating the Holocaust. Yes, they're not talking about theodicy, and they're not, but they are crying. This I saw myself. I used to daven on the west side of New York in a shtibel that was a Hungarian uh, sort of Hasidic shtibel. And the rabbi there, I remember he was talking about the Hurban. And uh, all he had to say was tears. He was crying about it. I've yet to see Lubavitcher cry about it. Not because they're insensitive, because they just don't know. The Rebbe never, never conditioned them to be sensitized to events of 1939 to 1945, which in their minds, their simple minds, as you say, their innocent, naive minds didn't affect them. That, that, that's the way they go. I even think, you know, I'm sure the Hasidim out there now are going to catch me and hang me. I even think one of the Rebbe's grandparents was killed in the Holocaust. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not going to put money on it, but sort of, as they say in Yiddish, Epis Kop, that one of his grandparents or grandparents' siblings was killed in the Holocaust. I mean, uh, listen, his brother was killed. Uh, his brother, um, you know oh, his man. name, Beryl. Beryl oh, was man, killed yeah. in the Holocaust. Beryl was killed. So, but nothing, zero, zilch. You know, uh, maybe the Rebbe said privately, Kaddishrim, what's wrong with uh, giving it a little publicity? That Heinz, Zogich, Kaddish, Van Bruder, Beryl, this okay, and that. Okay, listen, you're entering territory of Rebbe's family, which, which likes to stay out of publicity, so. No, why? The Rebbe, the Rebbe keeps his other brother out of publicity? What are you talking about? I oh, mean, yeah, Leiba, yeah. Leiba is a number he's one. A he's, gore, yes. he's, he's number one. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing gore. against uh, Leiba, alias Mark Garari, alias Luba, alias whatever. You know, I have nothing against him personally. He was a secular Jew who made his break with Frumkite, and he never, um, as far as I know, and I, I'm not going to say this 100%, never bothered anyone and uh, never claimed to be religious. He was a secular Jew. Uh, but come the movement and the leader of the movement, not the movement itself, who has turned him into, as you say, into a tzaddik gomer. Uh, you know, of course, at the same time, the Rebbe had a brother-in-law who had a long beard and never left his father-in-law's uh, Dala Damas, except for one occasion in the late 1930s. Uh, and he is, uh, he is basically uh, forgotten. I mean, Rabbi Gurari is just a uh, a footnote, a little footnote, whose only importance is that he was head of Lubavitcher Yeshivas, not 
that he was uh, the son-in-law of Lubavitcher Rebbe, because you can't say that. Because Lubavitcher Rebbe had only one son-in-law. And as I said last time, in fact, it's, it works the opposite. The Rebbe is the man whose father-in-law was Rabbi Schneerson, uh, Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson. It's not that Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson's son-in-law was Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. It's the opposite. Rabbi Menachem Schneerson is much more important than Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson. And so the COVID goes to the Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who had, whose father-in-law was Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson. You know. Rabbi Shalom Aleichem. Let's let's try to keep this uh, within an hour for now. Okay, what time do we have? We spoke about a little, about 45 minutes, I think. Okay, so we can well, wrap it up, you know. Yes, so let's just uh, save something so for the we, next time. Yeah, wrap it, give me something, you know, uh, do you want to, you know, do you have any final? Uh, uh, listen, uh, uh, I think we touched on all the fun subjects today. I can't think of well, anything else. Well, you know, I, I just want to add. Uh, no, listen, thing I, I do, I do, I do have things I want to talk about. Yeah, but they, but, they're, gonna... but they're so vast and so enormous. Yeah, it's not yeah. something you know I, gonna... I can throw in at the end of conversation. Yeah. Right. I just want to add one thing, and it's not specific, so okay. it'll take two minutes. And that's, um, I think there needs to be a frank and um, objective discussion of the Rebbe and public policy. And the Rebbe's failure to understand public policy, his anger at Israel not taking over Damascus, of course, that would have cost, what, three, 4,000 Israeli soldiers dead, wounded, uh, amputee, amputees, etc. Of course, 95% of his Hasidim don't serve in the army. You know, so what? And then when uh, Mr. Begin um, decided to chase Arafat's flotilla to Tunis and bombed the crap out of them, which they deserved, by the way, uh, the Rebbe went berserk. Why? He started screaming. It puts Jewish lives in danger. Whose life did it put in danger? His two shluchim, Rabbi Pinson and his wife. So what hypocrisy? Two people in Tunis, he's upset about Israel attacking the PLO by air, not costing Israel any casualties. But he tells the Israeli army to take over Cairo and Damascus, costing potentially thousands of Israeli dead and wounded. And you know what? You know as well as I do that within a week, the UN and Russia and the US would force Israel to withdraw. So it'll all be a brachal of Akola. But he came out and said that. Next, prayer in public schools. If the Rebbe had spent one day in a public school, and I did, I did, you would know how uncomfortable it was for a Jewish kid to bury his head and during that prayer in public school. But he didn't care because his Hasidim weren't going to public school. What did he care? You know, so he had a PR thing. He supports a moment of silence and a moment of prayer. Leave it alone. No one's asking you, Rabbi Schneerson. Let let Lahabdil Elif Abdullah's Archbishop Cook and Spellman let them take care of it. No, but he had to get involved in it. And you know, public policy goes down the line on Israel. Ah, then a subject that I and this would I promise I will stop. He was opposed to demonstrations helping the Soviet Jewry. You know, wrong. again, I'm wrong. Old... I what? can say it's wrong. It's wrong. Right, right. You, you, you know, you were. Kahana, right. Was, on... Kahana was right. 
Right. So it, it, it's, I'll say this and don't get angry at me. This is the dying talk us. Excuse me for being that uh, blunt. You were there. You were there. You, you knew. It was on your talk us. You knew. And, but I'll, I'll, I'll say here in the United States, we all knew he was wrong. We knew Kahana was right. We knew Jacob Birnbaum was right, all of a shalom. We knew that I think Glenn Richter is still alive. Uh, he should live until May of Astrum. We knew that these people were right. And in fact, they were right. They were right. Yet fast forward 20 years or something, he needs the books which is just a modern day example of the silverware of the, of the Rayats. He needed the book, so he made a huge tumult all over the world. In every city, they were tumbling. The PR machine was working overtime. And you know what? They didn't get it. Now, if the Rebbe had taken his own advice and followed silent diplomacy, he would have gotten the library. If he would have shown uh, whoever was in charge of Russia there, I don't remember it was Putin or whoever was in charge, that we don't really care about it. You know, you want to give it to us, but the Russians would have given it to them. But in all areas of public policy, this man failed. And yet no one is willing to say that. Instead, their PR machine and all the Tuchus leckers, excuse my vulgarity now, but Bobovichers talk the same way. I'm coming from their from their cheder. I learned this from their cheder. The, <laughs> their, their, I, I, you know, I, I'm I, genetically I'm no different than they are. Genetically, I'm from the same genetic. You're much strand. better than they are. You you you're a real giver. <laughs> you're not some kind of a make believe sugikumen, you know. Well, you know, so. You know, they know that the TLers in the American Jewish media and the ortho will never have the guts to come out and say, well, Rabbi Schneerson was a great Talmudist. He did take, as to quote Rabbi Soloveitchik, he did take uh, Judaism out into the street. I don't know if Soloveitchik meant it positively or negatively, uh, but let's say he meant it positively. Yeah, fine. But let's also say that when it came to public policy and especially Soviet Jewry, especially Soviet Jewry. Now I'm hitting myself on the head while I'm saying this. Especially Soviet Jewry. How wrong was he? How wrong was he? Mayor Kahana did what he had to do. Jacob Birnbaum, my friend, did what he had to do with student struggles for Soviet Jewry. Glenn Richter did what he did. And there are other people I don't remember. I don't know everyone. But there are other people who are also very much involved. And they'll forgive me if I didn't mention their names, but uh, I don't mean any slight by it. They were right. They, they were right. And the Rebbe was wrong. The more, the more demonstrations Kahana did, the more, I'm not justifying his shooting and this, but the more violent his demonstrations were, the more chance, and it's, we're proving that it's right. I mean, you know, Kahana did his violent demonstrations and the doors to Russia opened up. And that's well, all there are I have many to say. factors, but. There are, there are, but certainly you can't suggest that silence was the right policy. In that case, why didn't yeah, the yeah, but was, No, no, but I, I have a bigger fish to fry. But, but, but I, know, I have, I have one, a bigger fish to fry than, so, you know, some ultimately, even the biggest kings, they have policy mistakes. So, and, and then, and you can't, you can't rationally, rationally talk about this with Chabatsky because, uh, you know, if they don't like something, they say it's a Rebbe Shazach. If, um, <laughs> 
and that's it. And that's what that's where the conversation ends. You you bring something to them. The is when the Vishnu Rebbe takes off his gartel and hits a chassid with it. That's a Rebbe Shazah. But the Lubavitcher Hasidim always claimed that their Rebbe was the leader of world Jewry. And we don't, in that case, we don't, we don't believe in Rebbe Shazah. We're talking about a man who claimed that he was the leader of world Jewry. He advised Arif Sharon. He advised everyone. What no, to no, do. no, no, no. Listen, 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 listen. They, they want to have it both ways. On one hand, right? say that the Rebbe is Melech HaMashiach, and it, it's, mm-hmm. it gave up on the world, and nothing is going to help this world anymore until he's Mizgale. So, but on the other hand, claim that he is this chief executive, that he mm-hmm. organizes everything, and he's in charge of every very small decision. They want to have it both ways, and it doesn't work like that. And, and I say, okay, Adarabe, you want to call him, you want to call him a chief executive, so let's let's start going through the record and see how how was he chief executive and what specific decisions he made and what people who he appointed to various positions. Let's start with you're that. Let's start with his cabinet. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And now I'm now yeah, it's, this is dangerous because uh, yeah. one thing leads to another. Right. But I have to I have to say that the Rebus you know, he had many low points in the last years of his leadership. One of them was the Gurari story. Uh, but another low point was his activity, or better yet said, lack of activity in the Crown Heights riots story and in the murder of Yankel Rosenbaum. You know, where was he? He disappeared. He disappeared and allowed um, not only his close aides not to do anything for certain reasons that I don't, I'm not sure I want to broadcast them over uh, an open um, media because I think I, I'm not angry at these people per se, so I don't want to say that. But there were reasons why his close advisors couldn't get involved in it. So third-rate people like Rabbi Paul Thiel and others suddenly appeared on television as spokesmen for the Crown Heights community. Well, exactly where was, where was the self-proclaimed spokesman who claimed he went to Boston Latin School. Where was he? He, the graduate of Boston Latin School, nowhere to be found. And, instead, Ava Paltiel speaking, speaking his Russian-tinged uh, Oxford English, he became the spokesman for, you know, I'm getting vicious, I, I'll stop. I have nothing against any person I have mentioned personally. I'm just saying that they all, they all were part of the drama that was playing out in Crown Heights and not one person there. And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, if this is 100% true, and I won't mention his name for that reason either, but one of the Zikne Anash in Crown Heights after the Rebbe died, he, at a Shabbos Fabrengen in his house, said that communism is Tate. <laughs> and you know what? Since many of these Russian Hasidim were not stupid, uh, and they all had a certain, uh, I don't know what it is, a sharp sense of humor, I believe the story. Okay, on that note. Okay. You know, we continue. Thanks a lot. 
Amir Tashem. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.